0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. And open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is towards the end of your New Testament, so if you're new to the Bible, if you go to the end of the New Testament, Revelation, and take a left, you will be there pretty Pretty quickly. So, First Peter, our theme is "Stand Firm." Is what we're going to talk about. "Stand Firm" is the name of this uh, series, and we'll really be looking at First Peter for the next uh, next few months. So, we're going to spend a long time uh, looking at this idea of "Stand Firm" uh, from the book of First Peter. So, let me pray, and then we will launch into what'll be a uh, what'll be a kickoff for a study for us for some time. Let's pray. God, we are so amazed by you and what you have done for us. And of all the many things that we celebrate about you, now we celebrate that you are speaking to God, that you have not left it to us to figure things out, that you've not left it to us to do our best, but you have spoken to us through creation. You have spoken to us through your word. You've spoken to us through the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and tonight we open up a book where you speak authoritatively and clearly and powerfully to us. And we pray that in the coming weeks as we journey through this letter of First Peter, that you would speak to us that you would open our eyes to Christ in ways that we have not seen him before we pray that you would grant us grace to stand firm in a world where we feel resistance at uh, it sometimes it feels like at every place we turn so we pray for your grace and for your strength and for your help and tonight as we open this up this overview i pray that you would give us an appetite For you and for your word and for what's coming ahead in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, it seems like from just about every measurement that one could make that evangelical Christians, uh, and if you're new here, that would be us. We are evangelical Christians. Uh, That evangelical Christians would be losing influence in the American culture. I mean, if you want to look at church attendance if you want to look at um, the voice of the church into the culture, I think that everywhere you look, it's clear that the church's influence has been sliding and declining in our country for some time. Some evangelicals, many evangelicals, felt this summer there was a sharp cultural shift and a sharp movement um, with the Supreme Court decision legalizing gay marriage and whether or not that actually represented a new cultural shift, or whether it really just solidified and confirmed the shift that's been taking place for years or decades in our culture. Many Christians have begun to express fear, and at sometimes almost a panic, type of a tone, because there is all of a sudden a feeling that evangelical Christians no longer have home court advantage in the United States of America, that we no longer have a voice, a predominant voice. And and matter of fact, to many it feels like we have become, we have moved from a religious majority to a religious minority in the culture at large. So whether you mark it with certain things that have happened recently, or whether you just look around, I think anybody who's looking, Christian or non-Christian, would say the evangelical church does not have the influence or the voice that it once had in America. And so, what does that mean for the church? What does that mean? Does it mean that our religious liberties are going to start declining and eroding? maybe even at a faster pace? Does it mean that opposition to Christians, opposition to the church, opposition to what we believe in is going to be increasing? Does it mean that persecution against believers in Jesus Christ is inevitable? Is it coming? Is it inevitable in our country? And how are we as the church to respond? How are we to respond? Are we to be activists And as activists sort of seek political and maybe moral change in our country? Or are we to just go about our business, preaching the gospel, and just trust the Lord will work it all out? God is sovereign after all. What are we to do? And what really is the place of the church in the culture? What place should the church have? What voice should the church have into the culture at large? What is our role? And in many ways, some, some people I hear, it feels like we're almost going through an identity crisis. Like, who are we, anyway, as the church? At least in this country, maybe not in other places. But who are we? And I think this points to a real issue for the church and the days we live in. These are, these are vital, critical days, I believe. Um, And I think it points to a real issue. I, I don't know the answer to all the questions that I just ran off. I don't know the answer to all those questions. But this is what I do believe and what I do think I know from the Scripture that's really necessary. And that is we must recover a biblical identity of the church. We must understand who we are and what is our place and what is our goal. We need to be really, really clear on that because I think everything has shifted and we're not sort of not sure what we are supposed to be doing and what is our place at the cultural table. Do we even have a seat at the table? And what are we supposed to be like? Because once we know who we are and what we're called to be, I think it will enable us to sort of navigate life in a changing world. we living in a changing world. And we need clarity on how do we individually as Christians and how do we as a church navigate life in a changing world. And when we see how God identifies us, when we see how God describes the church and our purposes in the surrounding world, then we will have appropriate expectations. Because if we don't know what God's place for the church is, then we may be clamoring at all different kinds of things to get a voice in the culture. And we may be pursuing all kinds of methods that aren't God's methods at all. So we want to know, what is our place? How has God defined us uh, in, in terms of the surrounding culture? And that will help us to know, what are we to emphasize as a church? What are we to prioritize? I've been thinking about this a lot in the, in the last few years, really. Um, What is the place of the church and culture? How is church to relate to culture? And specifically, how am I and how are we as a church to relate to the culture around us? And I don't think there's any New Testament book that speaks to this issue any more clearly than the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter really speaks to people about how the church is to respond to its surrounding culture. Peter writes to believers, and we're going to see this for the next number of weeks. He's writing to believers who find themselves not in the center, but find themselves on the margins of culture, The Christians he's writing to are on the margins of society. But here's the good news. As we go through this book, we're going to see that even though they struggle and there's difficulties and there's resistance and there's pushback on the margins, the church is designed to thrive in the margins. As a matter of fact, if you look at the history, the church always does better as a minority. The church always does better when it's on the margins. The church gets lazy and slovenly and like real-worldly when it's the majority and when it's uh, sort of, it can just toss its weight around in a culture. But when it is on the outskirts and when it is the minority, that is when God works his most glorious work through the church. And so why I would never celebrate uh, any aspect of culture that would be turning from God, I also realize that that's when God is often at work. I don't think we're at a time in our country where we're to be panicking, I think we're at a time when we're to be trusting God for the gospel to shine, for the light to shine in the darkness, because as the world grows darker, the church shines brighter. And as the world becomes more desperate, Jesus becomes more glorious as the answer for their needs. So that's what this series is about. It's going to be about standing firm in God's grace, standing firm in the midst of a pluralistic culture, standing firm in the midst of a tolerant, or a selectively tolerant culture, standing firm in a resistant culture, standing firm in what is more and more becoming a hostile culture to those who, des- who desire to follow Jesus. Now we are not at the margins by any means. The stuff I said at the first, that it feels like we lost home court advantage, that it feels like we're on the margins, I'm saying that's, that's the, the broad perception that I pick up. I don't know how accurate that is in reality. I know that we're not on the margins like the people that Peter's writing to, and I know we're not at the margins like people that are dying for their faith in many places in the world. And a little perspective is helpful to anemic American Christians like you and me who panic when the first person looks funny at us when other people are being beheaded for their faith all over the world. So a little perspective is helpful to know that in the world today and throughout world history we still have it better than most have had it who want to stand up and preach the name of Jesus. There's no fear at all that someone's going to come in here kill me, kill you, arrest us, shut this down or anything like that. So we do not suffer like Peter's original re- uh, recipient suffered, and we don't suffer like many in the culture suffer. However, the trajectory is from the church moving to the margins of society in our voice, in our reputation, in what people are looking to. Many places people are leaving the church. Only one in five churches in the U.S. is growing. Eighty percent of churches have plateaued or are declining. One in five is growing. And of the churches that are growing the 20%, many of those, it's transfer growth. It's people that are coming from some other church. It's not people that are coming from the world and meeting Jesus. So there, there clearly is a decline of influence that barring revival, the trajectory is, uh, is one of marginalization for the church. But this is the time, I believe, that we can find God's hopeful metho- uh, message in 1 Peter that that I don't know if the Lord's going to bring the church into this, the center of uh, as, a, as, a, as a loud, influential voice in the culture. I don't know what he's going to do. But I do know that God works gloriously in the margins, for Jesus lived on the margin, and, gee, he is our Savior. Okay, here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to just give a little bit of an overview and an introduction to the book by reading the first two verses and then kind of say, here's where the book's going to go with a couple of big ideas about our identity as a church. Because in the first two verses, we find what the church's identity is, and he's going to be talking about that through the whole book. So i want to open that up tonight, give a few kind of big picture stuff, and then we'll really hit specifics and start moving uh, next week. But tonight, let's read verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, so th- we find out from the very beginning. Well, first of all, I want to talk about who is the author, and then I want to talk about who are the recipients. So, the author from the beginning we find is Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you're new to the Bible, Jesus had 12 initial disciples that were very close to him. And of that 12, he had three that he was perhaps closest to. And one of those was Peter. So Peter was very close to Jesus. He was kind of a guy who spoke first and uh, thought later, kind of a ready, fire, aim. He was that guy. And uh, there's lots of uh, somewhat entertaining stories about him in the Gospels. Uh, but he was not only close to Jesus, but after Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension, Jesus, I mean, Peter became the key guy in the church. So on the church's birthday, the day the church was born, so to speak, it's the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes and fills the people of God in the church's birth. On that day... Peter's the one who stands up and is the mouthpiece for the church. He's the first preacher, the first pastor following Jesus. He's the first guy that stands up when the church is born and declares the gospel. And what happens at that point, that's in Jerusalem. What happens in that point is that Peter becomes kind of the leader of the Jewish Christians. Christianity started as a monocultural kind of a group. It It was based among Jews. Jesus was a Jew. And his followers were Jewish. And so uh, among the people of Israel, uh, the church was born. And it ultimately spread to Gentiles. There's only two kinds of people, Jew or Gentile. So it initially uh, spread to Gentiles. But Peter remained the one who was sort of the apostle, the sent one, the authority uh, to the Jews, the Jewish Christians, that is. To those who were Gentiles and became Christians, Paul is the one who's viewed mostly in the Bible as the apostle to the Gentiles. So Peter works largely with Jewish Christians. And what happens is, in the ninth, Jesus dies around, let's say, 33 or so A.D. In the 50s, Paul goes and he takes the gospel to people who are Gentiles. Um, and that's in the 1950s. Now Peter is writing. We'll see this in a minute. He's writing to a group of Christians uh, That are probably Gentile and Jewish both. So Peter's writing to them And he likely writes this letter in the 60s early 60s So these people that we're gonna see in a minute. They're evangelized in the 50s and then Peter takes uh, Writes this letter to them in the 1960s Peter. Oh, 19, I'm sorry <laughs> Sorry Yeah, somebody's having a flashback, aren't they? Somebody, I don't know what I was doing in the '60s, but it's it's haunting me now. Not in the 1960s. Sorry about that. In the 60s A.D. So he wrote, uh, Peter wrote two books of the Bible. One is called 1 Peter, the other one's called 2 Peter, and he probably is the voice behind the Gospel of Mark. Mark wrote it, but at the end of 1 Peter, Peter says, Mark is my son, and he's with me. So he probably influenced, and he probably told Mark, hey, I saw Jesus do this, I saw Jesus do that, and Mark wrote it down. That's probably how we get the Gospel of Mark. Peter is the influence. So this was written. AD 60s or the 60s AD. He writes as an apostle, um, that is a messenger of Christ. In the New Testament, that was a, an, a, an office of, um, of authority. So an apostle in the New Testament time, someone who was with had, either with Jesus or had a vision of Jesus could speak authoritatively for him. So he's saying, I'm writing you authoritatively as Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. The recipients of the letter are, it's not a church, oftentimes it'll be the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, this is a group of Christians who are, I'm going to show you in a second, are in an area, he calls them the elect exiles, and those two words we're going to break down tonight because that gives us the theme of the whole book, the elect exiles, if we want to talk about our identity as a church. So he says he's writing to the elect exiles who were part of the dispersion, and he gives us these cities, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, if we got a map. If you're a map person, I'm going to show you where this is because it's in a specific area, and I have a pointer that I don't think is, you're going to be able to see this in the back, but I'm pointing right now at the Black Sea in the top right. So if you look, i got my little red pointer. Man, it looks like I'm really nervous or something. I'm jittery. I can't keep it still. Wow. Okay, so there's the Black Sea, And uh, so he's writing to the churches that are in Asia. This is a province called Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, right here, Pontus, and Cappadocia. So it's this area right here. This area is about the size of New Mexico. Would you think, wow, that's not too big? Well, New Mexico is like the fifth largest state in the country by landmass. So it's about the size of New Mexico, about the fifth largest state in our country. Uh, about that size, they're right here. And there's a real distinction in this area. He writes to this area called Asia. Uh, this area is very urbanized. Uh, they speak Greek. They are they travel, and so all of this area is part of the Roman Empire. It's influenced by uh, over here Achaia, which is Greece. It's influenced by Greece, and then over here in the top left, the boot, Italy. So Rome is right here. This is all under Roman rule. And in Asia, in the Asia, area of Asia, there's about 42 cities. And many of these have been evangelized. We see on here Ephesus, Colossae, they have letters written to them in the Bible. Uh, All the seven churches in the book of Revelation are all right there in Asia. So here's the thing you need to know about Asia that's going to come up in the book, um, in the book of 1 Peter. In Asia, there's 42 cities, and most of them have a temple to the emperor. And so I don't know what you think about the political process in the U.S. If you've watched the Republican debates, are you going to watch the Democrat, a Democratic debate coming up soon? But it's different than what they experienced because you were forced to worship the emperor in this day. The emperor was viewed as a god, and there was a temple to the god. So I don't know who you're going to vote for, who you like, and who you don't like, but you're not going to be forced to worship them. In a temple. There won't be temples in all the cities built to their honor. And that's what happened. And so Asia in particular had a number of those temples. There was more uh, temple uh, emperor worship there. The other cities, uh, the other countries, uh, I'm sorry, provinces, which are over here Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Bithynia. It's not that they were backwoods, but they were not as close to the uh, Greco-Roman world. They weren't as close to this kind of more civilized area. So over here, fewer people spoke Greek. The towns were spread out. It's a little bit more rural. Uh, than it is in Asia, which is more urban, sophisticated, hip, cities, uh, art, music, whatever, culture. They're more cultured. Now, why is that important? Why am I going to that kind of detail? Did I really want to miss the Cowboys game to find out about the difference in Asia and Bithynian culture? I mean, come on, give me a reason for that. Um, And we're not talking about the game, right? Because nobody's sharing scores in case you're DVRing it at home. so, uh, the reason I'm telling you that is because it's not... He says the same thing to all of them, but they don't all experience the same thing. There are some of them that are experiencing pushback. If you live in a town with a temple to an emperor and you will not worship at that temple and worship the emperor, you are going to get more pushback as a Christian than if you're kind of out in the sticks a little bit where it's not as big of a deal, there's no temple to an to a emperor, and the opposition would not be as strong. So, if you live in... Alabama, the opposition to the gospel today would not look exactly like it would if you lived in Boston or Seattle. Uh, So in many ways, in this illustration, the cities in Asia are Boston and Seattle. Those other ones, they're not Bible Belt, but they're just not going to be perhaps the same kind of resistance. But I say that because he says the same thing to all of them. So these recipients are called the elect exiles. The writer is Peter. The recipients are Christians who are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And here is the message he sends to them. They, he describes, as elect exiles. Okay, let's talk about this word exiles first. This is the message. The author, the recipients, Now I want to talk about the message of the book. They are exiles. This word is translated a number of different ways. It comes up later in the book, but sometimes it's translated foreigners. Some some, uh, translations translate it foreigners, some translate it aliens, Uh, not from space, but like from another country, aliens, okay, not from another uh, planet, aliens. But sometimes it says they're aliens. So like the New American Standard Bible, which is a very sound uh, translation of the Bible, the New American Standard translates it to those who reside as aliens, Okay, To those who reside as aliens. Not exiles, but aliens. Sometimes it's called foreigners. Here's the idea. It's someone who is viewed as a foreigner. Someone who isn't from the country they live in. Someone who is in a foreign land, who is living there, and is different, does not have the rights and privileges of a citizen like an alien in our country, doesn't have the rights and the privileges as a citizen. And more than that, it's not just that they're exiles, aliens, foreigners. It's not just that they can't vote and they don't have the same rights as citizens. It's more than that. It's they're viewed a little bit suspiciously because they don't embrace all the customs of the host land they're in. It's, and we can see this now in our culture, there, or in any country where there are people from other places. Sometimes they're viewed a little suspiciously. They don't do things like we do. They don't think. They, don't, they speak a different language, perhaps. Or they, there's something about them that is a, a bit different than the society in which they live. Now, here's what's important to note. He's not speaking um, literally. He's speaking metaphorically. He's not saying, you were born in Rome, but now you live in Cappadocia. And man, is that like being in exile? You know, he's not saying that. <coughs> these people may have been born and lived, <coughs> excuse me, in these various provinces. He's speaking metaphorically and saying, you Christians that I'm writing to, yeah, you foreigners in the land you live in. Man, I was born in Cappadocia. My daddy was born in Cappadocia. My gramps was born in Cappadocia. What are you talking about? No, I'm talking metaphorically. You're in exile. You don't belong in Cappadocia. You don't belong in Pontus. People are looking at you funny like you're foreign because you are foreign. So that's, what, that's how he's identifying them. We're going to see this comes up later in the letter. And the word exile, that's how the ESV translates it. The word exile is an Old Testament word which described the people of Israel. The people of Israel disobeyed God. They were captured by Babylon. They were taken off to Babylon, and they lived in a foreign land. Remember the story of Daniel. He lived in a foreign land. And uh, so the language of exile is a biblical picture of God's people living in a foreign place. Now, in the Old Testament, the people were exiles because they disobeyed God. To Peter's audience, they're exiles because they're obeying God. Because you're obeying God, because you follow Jesus, it's like you live in a foreign land to which you don't belong, just like Israel back in the Old Testament. He says these are exiles of the dispersion. It means the same thing. The Greek word, you maybe have heard it before because people are referred to this way. It's called the diaspora or the di- dispersion. It was Jews who were scattered and didn't live in Palestine but lived in other places. They were called the diaspora. They were part of the diaspora. Diaspora was just people who didn't live in their homeland who were scattered somewhere else. So he's just emphasizing it. You're like a foreigner who's been displaced into another land where you don't belong. That's what he's talking about. And they're not there because of war. They're not refugees. They haven't fled their homeland in persecution. They're just living where they were born, and they met Jesus, and they're following him, and now they feel like exiles. Because this world is not their home. They don't belong. They're not of this world. They are spiritual exiles. They are spiritually Heaven is their home. They're citizens of another kingdom. They are, they are part of God's kingdom. They belong to a different kingdom, and so they feel different in the land in which they live, even if it's the land they've always lived in. And that's true of you, and that's true of me, if you're a believer in Jesus. This comes clear a little bit more, that it's not about countries, really. It's about life is what it's about. Look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Chapter two, eleven. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners. What's a sojourner? As someone who's passing through. I urge you as those passing through and exiles. There it is to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now we're going to see that many of these readers are Gentiles because he's later going to refer to them as such. But here he's using the picture of kind of spiritual Gentiles, those that don't know God. So don't act like... People who don't know the Lord don't act like that. Abstain from the pa- uh, the, the uh, passions of the flesh. That's what he's going to say to him later. At one point he's going to say, "Don't go back with your old friends, partying, sleeping around, and just acting like everybody else in the world." Don't go do that because that's that's a different world. That was your former citizenship. And now you have a new citizenship. So what is it like to be a spiritual exile? It means that you don't pursue the passions of the flesh. What are they? Uh, listen to like the last eight sermons we preached about. That's, that's part of it. Sexual passions and other passions. Greed. Selfishness. Arrogance. Pride. Independence. Wealth. Uh, status. Status. You know, any anything that we pursue that's a passion of the flesh, don't live like the world. Don't pursue the American dream, he might say to us. Don't pursue the selfishness of the American dream, which is all around you, the greed, the lust, everything that goes with it, the pride, the selfishness as opposed to... The, don't pursue all of that kind of stuff, but keep your conduct different. Be honorable, so when they see your works, they'll glorify God. They'll say, man, like, you're from a different planet, we might say. You're from a different country, Like The way you act is different because there's love. We're going to see love as the distinctive because you love people. So he's writing to people and they say, man, can you imagine? You become a Christian in, uh, in the AD 50s and then you get the letter in the AD 60s and things aren't going so well. They told you if you believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life and that's wonderful, but bad things are happening to you. Your family mocks you and has resisted you. It's affected your business. Because you're a Christian, and you're different than everyone else, and you don't go down and worship at the temple, worship the emperor. And so you're just kind of looked at as funny. You're on the outside, and and they're they're experiencing various kinds of resistance we're going to see in the letter. And suffering, they're suffering for their faith. And so you're going, wow, what is so great about this? I thought this was going to be wonderful to believe in Jesus. And since I believed in Jesus, it hasn't been health and wealth. My, my life has gotten worse externally since believing in Jesus. Everybody liked me on the job before I became a Christian. Everybody invited me over to party before I became a Christian. Everything was great, but now it's costing me something. And so Peter's writing them and saying, hey, don't be surprised. You're a foreigner. You're an alien. From the very beginning, you are an exile. It's like you've been scattered. You're not in your homeland anymore because you died to that person and you're a new person in a new kingdom. And he's saying this from the beginning. This is the definition of the Christian life. Wow, in America, it feels like the church is sort of getting pushed to the margins. Welcome to Christianity. That is what Christianity has always been. It has always been a message that is resisted by a world that is under the sway of the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so that's what he's saying to them from the beginning. He's letting them know what their status is. He wants them to to know how to rightly live in a culture that does not love Jesus. And so he gives them this compelling analogy of exile. In terms of your faith, you are a foreigner. Realize that. And that will help you understand what it's like to be in a place that you're not from. Have you ever been in a place where you're not, where it's just different and you don't feel comfortable, you don't feel at home? At some level, that's all of life on the planet. Until we see Jesus face to face, there's going to be a degree of homesickness and I don't fit in and I don't connect and I don't relate. That's the fallen world. That's not you haven't found your best friend. That's humanity. I remember I spent a summer in the country of Panama. I didn't know any Spanish. So what, what idea to go to a country where you don't speak any of their language? That's not brilliant. But I went on this mission trip for a summer and you didn't have to speak the language. So I didn't. And uh, I can just remember I had a great experience. But I can remember at various times just going, man, this is, I, I just like feel disoriented almost. I feel so out of place. You remember traveling on these buses, and it wasn't buses like here. The city buses were like school buses that were painted all kinds of very bright colors, had things dangling down, had, I don't know the kind of music, so I hope this isn't disrespectful, but it sounded like what I would call salsa music. It's just kind of like that. And it was just different music to me. It was different music to me, not bad, just different to me. And I can remember sitting with, like, a, another American college kid. We are there to witness to people and stuff like that. We sitting on a hot bus with no air in the middle of a city, not being able to talk with anybody, and just going, like, man, I am r- really out of place. I'm, I'm about four feet taller than most of the people on the bus as well. Bl- I had blonde hair back then, more blonde hair. Like, this is just, these people are wonderful. I'm not saying anything bad about them. I'm the outsider. They're the insider. I'm on the margins. They're, it's not them. I'm the one who feels on the outside, and I just feel like the sounds, the smells, the food, the language, the way people respond, and it's all different, and, and I, again, I'm not mocking them at all, it's me, I'm the one who stuck out like a dumb American, they're the ones who were doing the right thing in their culture, and I feel like, I don't fit here at various times, At other times, I felt like I fit great, but there were those moments where it's just, I don't belong, I'm, in, I'm on the outside. That's the way it is to follow Jesus. There are times in the Christian life when even among our family, if we have unbelieving family members, you may feel on the outside. You may feel like an alien, like a foreign person. And that's why this is so important for us to get and for the church to get because there is a clear distinction between God's kingdom and the world's kingdom, between a believing society and an unbelieving society. And the distinctions... Well, they're becoming more and more clear. I think, in some ways, in our country, and this letter talks to us about how to live distinctly. And so, in this letter, here's the things he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about worship. Uh, what is worship to be like in a, when we're a distinct culture? He's going to talk if uh, we're distinct people. He's going to talk about marriage. How how is a Christian marriage to be distinct in a culture of unbelievers? He's going to talk about our work life. He's going to talk about how to relate to the government. I mean, is this is this vital stuff? How to relate to the government? What do you do on the job? How do you relate as a married couple? Uh, he's going to talk about how to use your spiritual gifts. He's going to talk about how to endure suffering. He's going to talk about how are we to be a witness, not only individually, but as a community? How are we, as a group of people supposed to be a light in the darkness? He's going to talk about all that. Hey, the good news is there's not one exile, the whole bunch of y'all are exiles," he's going to say. So as you exile together, as you live in exile together, you can make a difference in the world you live in by being a, a witness for Jesus. What else does he say? Well, he doesn't just say, you're an outsider, Get used to it. He says something more. He says, "You're elect. Verse 1, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, the elect exiles. Other versions say chosen. You are chosen. Um, Though you're foreigners and though you're away from your homeland, you're chosen by God. Wow, that's powerful. You're chosen by God. The New Living Translation, this is how it says elect exiles. The New Li- and it's a translation. It says, I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. That's powerful. I'm writing to you, God's chosen people, who are living as foreigners in Frisco and Little Elm and Prosper and McKinney and Plano and Dallas North Dallas and Carrollton. and I mean, You're a foreigner there, but I'm writing to you because you're chosen by God where you are. So they're not just to know their identity that, hey, it's okay to be different than our culture, but he also wants them to know, and you are loved and chosen by God. And then he gives three ways, this, this, this verse 2 connects back to the fact they're elect exiles. They're elect exiles, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father according to the foreknowledge. So you've been chosen by God's foreknowledge. God would know something ahead of time. And this is not what God knew, that one day you would choose him. No, you're chosen. That means God chose you, and he chose you as a person. He doesn't, when the Bible speaks of God foreknowing, it doesn't speak of God foreknowing things. It talks about God foreknowing people. He doesn't foreknow your decision. He foreknows you. And a great example of this, we were chosen by God's foreknowledge, is Romans 8. Look at Romans 8, uh, Romans eight twenty-nine. 29. Romans 8, 29. I'm just going to read it instead of looking it up there. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So he foreknew for those whom he foreknew. He foreknew people. And he foreknew that they'd be predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And the next verse, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So this is salvation from, from the old to the, to the future, from back to forward. So back, he foreknew us. Before time, and we will one day be glorified. We'll be resurrected to be with him. So you were chosen, and God foreknew you through, according to the foreknowledge of God. According to his foreknowledge, you were chosen by him. He wants to secure them in that from the bar- very beginning. And he doesn't just say, God foreknew you. What does he say? According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. The Father. Here's what he wants them to know. It's tough, you're being resisted, you feel like you don't fit, it's disorienting, it's confusing, you feel isolated at points, you feel resisted, okay, that is the Christian life to some degree, but you have been chosen by the Father. The doctrine of being elect, or the doctrine of election, it's not about theological debate. Well, where do you stand on that? He's not saying, hey, let's have a big debate over this. He's just saying, you're not going to be able to figure it all out, but let me tell you this, God picked you foreknowledge in the bible and election rather not foreknowledge election in the bible is always selecting someone out of this group and taking them apart to be god's people like abraham god looks over the whole world and he says i'm going to make a people for myself we don't know why but in his mercy i pick abraham and from abraham's going to come israel why didn't he pick some hittite or why didn't he pick someone i don't know but he chose in love and that's what he wants him to know he, he wants them to know God chose, picked you. God picked you. It's like adoption. The Bible says that God adopted us. It's like selecting a child to be your child. If you're, we, have, we have adoptive parents in our church. And an, a, the, the root of adoption is that you select a child to be yours. And that's exactly what he The Father does that for us. So that's to be comforting when they're living on the margins, when they're experiencing rejection, when people are mocking their faith, when there is... You know, religious rejection for not worshiping the emperor. From the get go, Peter wants them to know they have a father in heaven who knew ahead of time this would happen, who had chosen them ahead of time, who had elected them to be in his family, to be his children, so that they would present the message of the gospel to the world that desperately needs his love. Chosen by the father's love. And he tells them that not to puff them up, so like, I'm in, I'm chosen by the father. It's not so that they would be arrogant, but to give them their proper identity. It does not matter what the culture thinks. All that matters is what the father thinks, and what he's saying is the father loves you. You're in his family. You're his son. You're his daughter. Yeah, your boss may be doing everything he can to oppose you. Your other relatives may be talking behind your back already, and we're way out from the Thanksgiving holiday, and they're already talking about you at Thanksgiving because they oppose you. True, your brothers and sisters may not like you. Your parents may, I hope not, but it's possible your parents may not like you. But the Lord loves you. And he picked you. And he's your father. And so, yes, you're an exile, but you're an elect exile. Yes, you don't fit in, but you fit in in his family. Because he is your father. And he goes on to say, he does this, what next? In the sanctification of the Spirit. We're chosen elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. I mean, This is really wordy stuff, but I'll just try to make it as, as clear as possible because I know it's wordy. You're chosen by the Father, and he does that through the sanctification, by the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification has to do with holiness. And so it's used in two ways. One way, it means that we're set apart. So if it meant that here, it would mean God selected you, and he chose you to be set apart for him. That would be one way, holy it could mean. Or, sanctification also means growing in holiness to be more like Jesus. So he could be saying, God chose you so that you would be his, so that in a world that's dark, you would grow lighter and brighter and brighter, looking more like Jesus. Which is it? Well, probably both are true. So we'll go with C, all the above. God chose you to set you apart to himself, and now he's making you more and more like Jesus. So that you are chosen, what does he say next? For obedience to Jesus Christ. So you're chosen with a purpose. God didn't just choose you out. He chose you out so that you would follow Christ. So that in your work life, in your family life, in your home life, in your neighborhood, on your job, in your hobbies, you would live for him and represent him. You would glorify him with your life. What a great calling. Yes, they're resisting you because you follow Jesus. That's why I picked you. So you'd be like Jesus. He's just showing them he's all behind this. And for the sprinkling with his blood. This goes back to the old covenant. Sprinkling of blood was a cleansing over the, well, over different things. It was over the priests, over people with leprosy. There's a number of times where they sprinkle blood for cleansing. So you, you're being ongoingly cleansed. So you're set apart. God chose you. You're to obey him, and even when you don't, he sprinkles you, you're forgiven, and you go back and repent and obey him. There's an ongoing forgiveness in your life. So Wayne Grudem said, this is both a warning and a comfort. I'm sorry, it's an, it's an instruction and a comfort. You're instructed to obey the Lord, and you're comforted, that even when you don't, you're under the blood of Christ. Repent and obey. Receive forgiveness, obey. So they are, what is the two words? They are elect exiles. That's our identity as a church. Chosen foreigners, somebody said. We are the chosen foreigners. Chosen by the Father, resisted by the world. We are, as, as my, my friend Rick Gamash called this elect exiles, he said, we are the selected rejected. Which is a great, like in my college days, that would have been a good name for a punk band, a punk rock band. We are the selected rejected. That would have been, that's just like a rock band all over it right there. We're the selected rejected selected by the Lord, though some in our culture are going to reject us. And the selected, rejected just sounds a whole lot like Jesus, doesn't it? John 15, Jesus says, The servant's not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. He was resisted by people, not by the Father, but by people. No matter, he was resisted. And so there is this real sense that the Christian message will always place us in foreign status in the world. Always. And no matter how much we dress it up, the Christian message is never, ever going to be culturally cool. We can bring in fog machines, we could do a light show right now, I could go buy some skinny jeans, we could do all kinds of stuff. That's a threat. That's a threat. <laughs> We could do all kinds of th- stuff to, re- and, and, and to relevant it out. And the three things I just mentioned aren't sinful. They just came to my mind. But I'm just saying we could do all kinds of things to say, this will make it, Wh- or whatever, wherever you are. We could do cowboy church if you're out in the country. Uh, We could do hip-hop church. We could do whatever it is. I couldn't, but some people could. We could do whatever it is that that connects with a segment of society to look relevant. But it's never going to be cool in a pluralistic world to say, there's one way. We're going to say it lovingly. We're going to say it respectfully. We're going to say it gently. But if you do not believe in Jesus alone, you are condemned for eternity. You cannot make that message cool. In a world that lives for tolerance... If you say that this is the only way, and if you don't believe it, you are separated from God, that will never be cool. That will always be foreign. That will always be alien. That will always be different. You, you, can't, you can't say that. I mean, you just can't declare... You can't have swag and cool by just declaring, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're condemned. That will always be resisted in any culture. You cannot teach the sexual ethics of the Bible and have the entire unbelieving world say, that is great. Tell us more. Some people will. And the sexual ethics aren't our message. Jesus is our message. But you can't take entailments of faith. You can't take what Christ produces in us and live that way and have the world applaud that. You cannot wade into the political arena. I know whether you're on the right or the left. There are religious right and religious left who all want to ask, act as if there is a Christian political Deal going on? Okay, fine. If you're on the religious left, left or right, either either spectrum, just go up and start talking about Jesus is the only way, and there's only one way to the Father, and see how that's appreciated. It's just not, you cannot wade into the political world, you cannot wade into the educational world, you cannot wade into the uh, uh, the entertainment world by saying the Bible is entirely true and authoritative. God's Word is inerrant, and we are called to obey Him. You just can't say that, and everybody's going, oh, yes. Now, you can say certain things like, yeah, I want to thank God that He helped me win this Grammy. I mean, you can mention Jesus at certain times. Yeah, we won the Super Bowl, I just, like shout out to the man upstairs. Okay, everybody's won, wonder- oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But in reality, you can't bring the claims of the gospel to bear in a society and not look for them. We should be relevant in in our language. We should seek to connect. We shouldn't be archaic for archaic's sake. We should talk the language. We should be good neighbors. We should relate to people. But you can't dress up the message and say, wow, I thought getting saved was going to make me Cool. What happened to the founder of our religion? They killed Jesus. They didn't give him man of the year. Time magazine, man of the year. No, they killed him. He was nailed to a cross, not handed a Grammy or an Oscar. He was nailed to a cross. And he says, whoever follows me, there's going to be a sense in which you are out of sync because you've got to take up your cross. I've got to take up my cross. And if you want to be exactly like the world's culture, if you want to have the exact same beliefs, the exact same values, the exact same customs, the exact same conduct, so that it costs you nothing, then Jesus is not for you. I don't know what you were told at the altar call, or when you heard the gospel, or in the track, or in your friend sharing the gospel. I don't know what they told you, but here's what Jesus said. It's a glorious gift. It's a wonderful gift. You cannot earn or deserve salvation. But you've got to take up a cross and follow him daily. You've got to die to yourself. And if that was in the fine print and you didn't get it, and you were told you could just get healing and uh, a better job and a great spouse, and if you were told you could get the American dream by praying this one little prayer, you were deceived. You were deceived because that's not in the Bible. He says, Hey, everybody, guess what? You're a foreigner. You're like an illegal alien. That's what he says from the beginning. You're like an exile but you're a chosen by the Father exile. And that makes a wonderful difference. Now, I, I want to say something really important, just so I'm not misunderstood, and we'll get into this. I, I just got to say this one thing though. It's important. I am not talking about, nor does this letter talk about, withdrawing from the world. M- many of us, I don't know the percentage, many of us don't need to withdraw more from the world. We need to press into the world. I didn't say sin. I didn't say pursue the world's worldliness. I didn't say pursue the world's mindset. I'm saying we need to be connected to people in the world that don't know Jesus. So many of us need to press into people that don't know the Lord. We're not to withdraw from the world. The the alternative is not you're foreign, so create your own Christian ghetto. Get your own Christian clothes. Get your own Christian music. Get your own Christian restaurant. Get your own Christian sports league. Get your own Christian... I don't know, whatever, your own Christian deal. Make sure you've got your own Christian mall. Get your own Christian burger. Have you ever had a Christian pizza? Get that and get all together with Christians. That's not what he says. He says you're supposed to be a witness in the world as a Christian. So he's not saying reproduce everything the culture does, and we typically do it worse, but reproduce everything the culture does, and then just do our own little enclosed, insular, cloistered deal where we're just among our... No, that's not what I'm talking about. Because if you are going to receive some resistance, if I am going to receive some resistance, that means I'm going to live for Jesus in front of someone and talk about Jesus in front of someone at some point. So we're to be a community that interfaces with the world, but we're to be distinct, and we're going to see in here, we're to be primarily distinct through our love. And we're to answer the world. But do you know how Peter says we're to answer the world? He says this, he says, Be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect he's assuming that something about my speech and something about my language would cause someone to ask me about the hope that's in me. And when I give it to them, I don't give them a political rant and a political tirade from the left or the right. I'm not going to be an equal opportunity offender here. It's not that we're just going to give them this big deal or cram it down. No, with gentleness and respect, tell them about Jesus. But if I'm just at the Christian bowling alley with my Christian shoes on in my Christian lane, I'm never going to meet anybody who doesn't know the Lord. So it's not cloister, it's live in the world, but it's do so in such a compelling manner that they would ask. And when you do, we're all going to have some level of suffering from family, from friends, from neighbors, and we'll find ourselves pushed to the margins. But when we do, we will find strength in being the chosen of the Father. Set apart in holiness. This book is about being holy. Set apart in holiness, repentant holiness by the Spirit, obeying Jesus and sprinkled with blood his forgiving power. That's what we're to do. And so at the end of the book, here's the big, here's the big deal. Look at chapter 5. We'll finish right here. Chapter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a, faith, as a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. The whole letter is going to say, here's the grace of Jesus, now stand. Stand firm. That's our series. I'm read you a letter and we're done. I found this compelling, because this is a letter written between 130 A.D. and the late 2nd century, so let's call it 180. 130 to 180, somewhere in there, there's a guy named... Uh, Diagnetus, I think you pronounce it. And a Christian writes him a letter. Diagnetus is not a Christian. And he wants to know about what the Christians are like. And so this guy writes him a letter in the 100. So this is maybe a hundred years after 1 Peter, maybe 80. Let's call it 80 to 120 years after 1 Peter's written. And this guy writes, and this is what he describes the Christians. I was reading this. I go, wow, I want to be like that. I want us to be like this. This is what he says. He's explaining to them what Christians are like. He's in the Roman Empire, probably some, has no idea. Who are these heretics? This is what he says. Christians are not distinguished from other men by country, language, nor by customs which they observe. They do not inhabit cities of their own, use a particular way of speaking, nor lead a life marked out by any curiosity. In other words, if you drove down the street, you wouldn't know. Oh, okay, it's that guy, you know, wearing all white, with his hands up in the air, praising the Lord. It's not like that. So you wouldn't even know, they don't live in the Christian country, they're just out among us, that's the first thing he says. Instead, they inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities. And it is, while following the customs of the natives in clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary life, they display to us their wonderful and admittedly striking way of life. So they dress like us, uh, they eat food like us, they live an ordinary life, but they're striking in it. They live in their countries, but they do so as those who are passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is like their homeland, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. They marry like everyone else, and they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. People offered their children up in sacrifice. They don't offer any of their kids up. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They don't sleep around. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. I just keep the letter of the law. They love. They they go beyond the law. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. They are dishonored, and yet in, every, and in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are spoken ill of, and yet they are justified. They are reviled, but they bless. They are insulted, and they repay insult with honor. They do good, yet they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice, as if raised from the dead. They are assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who ate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred." powerful powerful how are they distinct they're distinct by their love for others by the bless those who revile them and curse them and harm them by loving and serving and giving that's what peter's going to write about in this letter it's about being a people that are distinct by the grace of god for the glory of god embracing the resistance humbly graciously lovingly being a light in the darkness and it's my prayer for my life for my family and for our church that we would stand firm in the grace of God and that we would understand how God wants us to engage in a compelling way with people all around us that need Him. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org